0: Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 14 uh, about how we are dead to sin but uh, alive to God. You can find Romans 6 on page 886 if you're using a pew Bible. Feel free to grab one of those in front of you You and you can follow along. It'll be on the screen, but yeah, I think it might be helpful to have something that you can look at. It's also in the bulletin. You can grab one of those and follow along there. There's a little place to take notes, whatever uh, would serve you the the most. Um, Today, Paul is going to kind of answer an objection, a question that he anticipates has been raised in the hearts and minds or on the lips of uh, his hearers thus, thus far. Up until now in Romans 1 through 5, he's been making a case and building a case, presenting arguments, establishing doctrine. And so now, like any good lawyer, right, he's going to anticipate uh, uh, the possible rebuttal or objection that his hearer might might have. So uh, Romans one through three, if you'll remember, is about the wrath of God and, and the sin of humanity. How all people, Jew and Gentile, religious person, non-religious person, we have all sinned against God. We're guilty before God, and uh, our only hope is uh, the, the the grace of God. That's kind of Romans one through one through two. Right in in Romans chapter three, he kind of ties a bow on it and says, therefore, since all Jews and all Gentiles, all religious and non-religious people are guilty before God, that means that all people are guilty before God. And, and in Romans 3, at the beginning, he deals with three objections in quick succession, in rapid fire. He says, uh, you know, if we're all guilty before God, then, then what's the advantage of being Jewish, right? Uh, if, if Jews and Gentiles both uh, are under... The condemnation of God and need the grace of God, then why even be, uh, what's the advantage of being Jewish at all? His second objection is, well, what if people in the nation of Israel, what if they break their covenant? What if they walk away from God and stop believing in God? Then is God going to judge them? And if so, does that mean that God himself has become, is he not keeping his promises to the nation of Israel? Those are the two kind of first two objections that Paul uh, addresses in Romans 3, and he, he gives answers to them there, but he gives Uh, An extended uh, kind of comprehensive treatment of it in Romans 9 through 11. That whole chunk uh, that we're going to get to in several months is uh, about the nation of Israel and how they fit into the redemptive work of of God. So first two objections from Romans 3 are dealt with in Romans 9 through 11. The third objection from Romans 3 says, uh, well, doesn't our unrighteousness serve to show and highlight and, and kind of make much of the righteousness of God? Doesn't our sin actually glorify God? Meaning, so, you know, if, if, if the gospel of grace is true, Paul, that you're preaching, then, then why shouldn't we uh, go ahead and sin as much as we want? The more, the more we sin, the more God forgives us. And the more God forgives us, the better he looks. So win-win. We get to enjoy sinning. God gets to enjoy looking great for forgiving people. That's kind of the third objection that Paul, uh, you know, introduces in Romans 3, and that objection is treated extensively in Romans 6 through 7, 6 through 8. So we're going to start kind of unpacking that objection here this, this morning, right? Romans one through three, sin of humanity, wrath of God. Romans three through four, right? God's grace for sinners, right? God saves them and reconciles them to, them to Himself when they trust in Jesus. Romans five, we've seen the last two weeks, is that God uh, keeps His people. When He saves someone, He keeps them, and you you can't lose your you can't you can't unearn something that you never earned in the first place. You can't undeserve something that you never deserved in the first place. So you Romans 5 is kind of saying you can't lose your salvation. You can you can fake it thus showing that you never really had it, but you can't lose uh, your, your salvation. So that brings us to Romans 6, the next logical question that you would land at, right? If someone says, you know, you're saved by grace, there's nothing that you did to contribute to your salvation in any way, and you can't lose your salvation, right? God is going to keep you forever and ever. You can be assured of that. Well, if you say that to someone, then a natural response you would expect might be, well then, what's stopping me from doing whatever I want to do all, all the time? If you own a business and you say to your employee, you, right, you, you're, you will always get a paycheck every two weeks no matter what, nothing you do, regardless of your performance, regardless of if you even show up or not, nothing you do will change that. Then what reason do you have to think that that employee is going to show up for work the next day? That's the objection that Paul is going to deal with at length in Romans 6 through 7, but but yeah, largely here in Romans 6, 1 through 14. So let's read the passage together, let's pray together, and then let's dive in and consider that question together uh, as a church family. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, right? How can we who died to sin still live in sin? And so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would come here this morning and meet us and speak to us through your word. God, I pray that that I personally could get out of the way so that you can speak directly to the hearts of your people through your word. I pray that you would... Uh, encourage us and teach us and edify us through your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, the question that Paul is looking to answer today, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Right, Paul, if your gospel is true, if you really can't lose your salvation, if I'm really firm, if I'm really secure, if I can have assurance of my salvation, then why should I not continue to live in sin since God's going to save me anyway? And Paul's answer, by no means. We saw this same phrase a few weeks ago in Romans 3. Other translations render it, uh, God forbid, or may it never be, or absolutely not. Right, the the Greek the Greek word here for by no means is uh, May me genoito, which is which is interesting. So me is a negation; it means no or not. But genoito means to exist or to come into existence. So it's the same word for Genesis, right? G- Genesis to come into genoito. So um, so this phrase literally me mean, it, it means by no means, but literally it means it does not exist. Or it never came into existence. So it's the, it's the strongest possible terms that you could use that Paul could have chosen to deny, right? He's, he's saying, I don't just disagree with that. I don't just think that it's wrong. I'm not even going to dignify it by acknowledging that it exists, right? That, is, that proposition is so absurd, it's not even a real thing. It's like a... a, a square circle. It's like a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a preposterous non-existent idea that you, that you are, are, are talking about. Which kind of raises the question, right? Well, Paul, it seems like our question in verse 1 actually is reasonable, right? Like, if like you're saying it's unreasonable, it's so absurd it doesn't even exist, but, but it kind of, you know, kind of like if, if we are saved by grace and if we can't lose our salvation, then uh, like it kind of seems like maybe it is uh, reasonable, so why is it so absurd that you say it doesn't exist by any means? God, yes, right? And, uh, uh, he says, how can we who who died to sin still live in it? Right? So I'm, he's going to explain for the next several verses why that is such an absurd question to ask, an absurd proposition to hold on to, that, that we as Christians should intentionally, unrepentantly, with with a high hand, sin against God, uh, presuming that we will then be saved by the, the grace of God. Here's why that's so absurd and so ridiculous and, frankly, non-existent. The reason is uh, we, we have died to sin, so how can we still then live in it, right? So, you know, Paul starts by saying, if your understanding of what happened when you became a Christian was merely or purely legal, right? Uh, forensic, right? Like before, I was guilty, but now I am considered righteous. If that's the entirety of what you understand to have happened when you became a Christian, or if if your understanding is entirely. Uh, Cognitive and intellectual, right before I did not believe in this set of propositions about God, and now I have given intellectual assent to those propositions about god or or if you understand your salvation to be purely social or relational before I was not a part of the church, but now I am a part of the the church right if you if that 's the extent of your understanding of what happened when you became a christian then then you don 't have uh, you don't have a complete picture of what happened when you became a Christian, right? I mean, all of those things are true, right? Becoming a Christian is not less than this, this legal change in status from guilty to righteous. It's not less than an intellectual assent to a set of propositions about God. It's not less than relational where before my first loyalty, my first team was my family, my ethnicity, my... Try my political, whatever, and now my first team and my first loyalty is the the church. That's the center of gravity in my life because that's the most important and truest thing about me. All those things are true, but it's but but uh, in fact, trusting in Jesus and becoming a Christian is far more than that. When you became a Christian, a a death took place. Someone died and someone else was resurrected in that old self place. Your old self died right, uh, and, and a, a new self was raised in its place. And so the idea of a Christian intentionally living in open unrepentant sin and presuming upon the grace of God and saying, I'm just going to sin because grace will cover it is, is tantamount to trying to resuscitate that old person. That old person who's dead and who a new person has been resurrected in his, his place. That old person loved sin and hated God and the new person that was resurrected when you became a Christian loves God and hates sin you were it, it's not you know you were born a second time according to to John when he's speaking with with Nicodemus you're a new person who hates sin and loves God right you're not a person that never sins you're just a person that hates sin and hates when they sin and and actively repents when they see sin in their their life. You died to sin, how can you still live in it? And Paul goes on to show that the symbol, the the illustration of how we died to sin and were raised uh, as a new person with new life when we became a Christian, the symbol of that is baptism. Specifically baptism, uh, you know, when it's practiced by Uh, immersion, right? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You were uh, identifying with and kind of being attached to uh, the death of Jesus. We were therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when you witness a baptism by immersion, it's it, God made it. It was intentionally designed to kind of look eerily similar to a burial. Right? At, a, at a funeral, we gather around the graveside and we watch as the dead body is lowered into the ground. When we baptize a new believer by immersion, we gather together and we watch as that person is lowered into the, into the water like a burial. Burial. But Jesus did not just die and get buried. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He got up out of the grave. And so the same thing happens with baptism, right? We don't hold a person underwater when we baptize them. We bring them up out of the water, right? And so, so uh, when we immerse them in water, it's meant to kind of image burial. When we raise them up out of the water, it's meant to image resurrection. We bury them with Christ, and they are raised in newness of life. Jesus died. Jesus was raised. Baptism symbolizes that the Christian also dies and the Christian is also raised. His old self that loved sin and hated God is dead. His new self that loves God and hates sin is alive. That's why a Christian cannot continue in sin and abuse the grace of God and presume that he will be saved anyway because that's something that his old self would have done but that's not something that his or her new self would, would do because that self is walking in newness of life verse 5, 4 if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his so, so you can't be associated with Christ's death without also being associated with Christ's life, right? Those two, it's a, it's a package deal. When Jesus died for our sins on the cross, uh, a lot of benefits were procured for us and kind of given to us secured on our behalf, right? Jesus satisfied the the wrath of God that we deserved, and so now we don't have to uh, bear the wrath of God that we deserve. Instead, we can uh, enjoy forgiveness, we can be reconciled to God because Jesus uh, absorbed and satisfied the wrath that is rightfully ours. Those are all things that were secured for us at the cross. Great news. Uh, who doesn't love that? But, Paul is saying you can't have that. You can't identify with the death of Christ and enjoy the Benefits that were secured by the death of Christ without also identifying with the resurrection of Christ and uh, imaging and embodying the benefits that were secured for you through the resurrection of Christ. You can't have the forgiveness of sin that was purchased by Jesus' death without also having supernatural power and renewed desires to live a godly, holy life that was purchased by Jesus' resurrection. Package deal verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So one of the things that happened with at that that moment of death and resurrection when we became a Christian is that uh, before that moment we were enslaved. We were in slavery. So we were enslaved by and dominated by sin and our sinful nature, right? We had a sinful nature that always wanted to gratify itself and exalt itself and and it wanted to get its way and it wanted to be the center of attention and it was like a slave master and we were doing exactly what the slave master was telling us to do but then that guy died, that slave died and a new person who is not a slave is not enslaved to that, that sinful nature slave master a new person was raised up in his place a person that has new desires and is no longer obligated to obey the slave master, sinful nature. Someone died, a, sla- a someone who was enslaved to sin died, and someone who is free from slavery to sin was raised up as a new person when you were born a second time. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from Sin, so he's kind of proving that, like, that death and resurrection had a a liberating effect to it. Paul's going to uh, unpack this more in Romans seven, talking about the liberating nature of death, right? And how, you know, when when a person, if you if you're married and you die, your spouse is free to be free to marry someone else. Not the most romantic thing in the world, but it's true. You die, your spouse can marry another person. They're not guilty of adultery in the eyes of God or or legally in the eyes of the state or anything like that because death, right, death has this power to release you from whatever obligations were formed. like you're dead now. So you those obligations aren't if you are if you have a bunch of credit card debt and you die. I mean, it's I saw a bumper sticker one, right, that said, beat the system, die in debt. That's a bad I do not recommend that. It's not godly. It's not wise. It's not kind. But it's tapping into this principle that that if you're in debt up to your eyeballs and you die, what are they, they going to do? Like come to your grave and ask you for it, right? Like, you know, they, they can go up to your assets, I suppose, but you are gone. You're standing before your creator. You're giving account to God for what you, how you live this life on this earth. You're either in heaven or in hell. You carry, You care very little about how your credit card bill is going to get paid this month because you personally have been released from that. When you die, you are released from those obligations. And and when you became a Christian, you were enslaved to and obligated to sin before in the same way that a man who's in debt is enslaved to and is obligated to pay his bills, his credit card bills now. But when you, when that old self died, he doesn't have to answer to sin anymore. Just like when the guy in debt dies, he doesn't have to pay his debts anymore because he's dead it's, it's a, it's, he's released from, from that and so Paul's saying your old self died and so therefore he has been set free from his obligations to sin and his you know the slavery that he was carrying around to sin and the sinful nature verse 8 now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with Christ so this is just restating what he said in verse five, right Been united with him in his death, you will certainly be united with him in his resurrection if we 've died with Christ, then we will also live with christ it 's a package deal you can 't have the benefits of the death of Christ, forgiveness of sins without also having the benefits of the resurrection of Christ, new life, supernatural power to overcome sin and death in your in your life. I was watching a video recently about uh, Celebrity who was being interviewed by uh, the, you know, these guys, and they kind of asked him, kind of tongue in cheek, like uh, kind of joking. Like the tone was silly enough that they could smirk and play it off as if they're not being serious, but it was also serious enough that, if, that they could say after the fact that they really asked this question. But they, they asked him if he wanted to accept Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. And so it's kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of silly, but asking this, this, you know, celebrity, do you want to do that right now? And the celebrity kind of, you know, the cameras are on, so he's kind of on, so he doesn't want to, like, alienate anyone. So he kind of mumbles and kind of dodges the question for a minute or two. And then there's an awkward silence, and he says, but hey, you know, listen, I mean, if Jesus is just out there handing out salvation, I mean, I'm not going to stop him. Right, I mean, like, if Jesus is just going around saving people, then yeah, sure, he can save me. Like that was the guy's like attempt to try to not actively say no, I'm not a Christian and no, I don't believe it in Jesus. Yeah, if Jesus is just handing out salvation. Sure, I'm not going to stop him, and he's free to go ahead and sit right. No one is going to say, oh, benefits of Jesus' is death, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God. No, I don't want any of that. I mean, you're you're going to say. Sure, like, I'll, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to, yeah, if you're just handing it out, I'll take it. I'll throw it in storage, maybe it'll come in handy sometime, maybe not. But Paul's saying, That's, you, that is That is rending the work of Christ in half. You can't say, I'll take this benefit of the death of Christ, forgiveness of sins, but I just want to slap it on to a dead person who's enslaved to his sin who has not been raised in newness of life, with new desires and and newly regenerated, uh, you know, concerns about God and His His glory? No, it's a package deal. Benefits of the death of Christ, forgiveness of sin, come packaged together with benefits from the resurrection of Christ, supernatural power to live a new life, right? New re- renewed desires to live a godly life, of victory over Satan and sin and death. Christ's death secures forgiveness, legal, forensic justification, so that God can look at you as if you lived the righteous life of Christ. But Christ's resurrection secures new life, power over sin, so that you actually start to look more like Jesus. So Paul is saying, you can't have the one without the other you you might not see immediate victory over every sin in your life right away. there might be a, a, a prolonged struggle to fight against sin but you will have an immediate aversion to sin. you will have an immediate hatred of sin and you will not want to keep throwing yourself into un- right the, the, the mark of the Christian is not that I never sin. The mark of the Christian is that I hate my sin and I hate it when I sin and I actively want to repent and fight against and kill sin in my life so that I will look more like Jesus and more like God over time. And the good news that Paul is communicating to us here in this passage is that that it's not a matter of if that will happen, it's when and how. It's, it's an inevitability. That, that idea of growing to look more like Jesus is an inevitability for everyone who really trusts in Jesus because of verse 9. right? We know that Jesus Christ, being raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus only died once, ever, forever. That is it. There's several people in the Bible who die and come back to life. We, you know, we did First and Second Kings a year or two ago, um, and yeah, I looked at the widow in Zarephath. Her son uh, was died and came back to life. The Shunammite's son in Second Kings died, came back to life. In the Gospels, Jairus' daughter dies and is raised back to life. Lazarus dies and is raised back to life. There's several people in the book of Acts who die and are brought back to life. But all of them, they die, they come back to life, and then they die again. Because they were just, you know, resuscitated. Basically, right? Like they, they, but Jesus' resurrection was different than any of those, because Jesus, when he died and was brought back to life, he didn't stay dead, he ascended Into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, one death on the cross for sin. That's it forever and ever. And Paul is saying, just like Jesus died, like there was a finite moment in time, a contained, finite moment in which Jesus was subject to and he was under the dominion of death but he's not subject to death anymore. He's not under the dominion of death anymore. He is totally, entirely, 100% alive, always will be, forever and ever. He died once in the past, was subject to death then, but he's alive now. Death has no power over him anymore. And Paul says, that's the picture of you and sin. Verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So just like... Jesus was at one time in the past subject to death and death had dominion over him but he doesn't anymore so too the Christian at one time in the past sin and death had dominion over them but it doesn't anymore they had a sinful nature that they had inherited from Adam they hated God they loved sin but that is all in the past now death no longer has dominion over them they have a new life that was secured by Jesus' resurrection, a life marked by supernatural power filled by the Holy Spirit to see victory over sin. So Paul's saying, hypothetically, right, it's not a thing that exists. So I'm not conceding that by any stretch, but hypothetically, if it were possible for a Christian to actually want to and then go ahead and do continue in sin, So that grace may abound. If it was possible for a person who loves Jesus to do that on purpose, Paul says that would effectively be the same as if Jesus was dying a second time. Jesus died once. He'll never die again. You were subject to and under the dominion of sin once, but you never will be again. Uh, Jesus can't be crucified a second time and subjected to public disgrace. That's impossible. He died once, he won't again. The Christian was under the power of sin once, but he won't be ever again. It's by definition impossible. A Christian cannot, like actually, ontologically, is not able to say and think, why shouldn't I just go ahead and sin so that God will just be gracious to me anyway? That's not a thing that could happen. It's, it's impossible. And then in verses 12 through 13, there's a transition, right? Everything 1 through 11 has been proposition, doctrine, propositions, statements that are true. We have been baptized into Christ's death. We have been united with Christ's death. We were raised with Christ in newness of life. We have been united with him in his resurrection. Our old self is dead. Our new self has been set free to live Death no longer has dominion over us. Sin and death no longer... Or death no longer has dominion over Jesus. And sin and death no longer have dominion over us. Facts. Indicative statements. The closest thing to an imperative that we've seen so far was in verse 11, where it says, Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, which basically just means, Understand and believe all of the facts and doctrine that I've been saying so far. So It's mostly... Propositional indicative statements. Here we see a transition to imperative commands, behavioral commands. Since those things in verses 1 through 11 are true, this is what I want you to do now in verses 12 to 13. Practical application of the abstract doctrine that we've seen up until this point. And his application is his practical next steps are. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin reigns in the lives of unbelievers. It dominates. It is in control. It is on the throne. It makes them do what it wants them to do, right? Unbelievers are under the comprehensive pervasive effects of sin and they worship the idols that their sin their self right, put, puts in in front of them the idol of comfort the idol of security the idol of success the idol of pleasure the idol of of being exalted by other people and respected by other people and the idol of being in control and getting what I want all the time right all of these idols are put in front of the unbeliever by their sinful nature and they are dominated by it under the enslaving power of it and apart from Christ and apart from the Holy Spirit in our lives we would all be worshipping at the idol of self Paul says, the way to overcome sin, right, the way to live that new life that Jesus purchased for you at the resurrection is to, is to push back against that idol of it's self-denial, right? To push back against the idol of self, which again, is the, the language Jesus uses is called self-denial. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. So instead of serving self, loving self, obeying self, doing whatever my self wants me to do, which is our natural disposition, we deny ourselves. We deny all of those things. We repent of it. We serve Jesus instead of ourselves, love Jesus instead of ourselves, obey Jesus instead of ourselves. That's what it means to repent. And that's what it means to practice self-denial. And that's what Paul says will inevitably be The defining reality of every Christian is that they deny themselves, repent of their sin, and trust in Jesus and follow Jesus. Imperfectly, to be sure, but increasingly over time as we we grow. So don't let sin... Sin reigns over everyone until... They trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit sets them free from that choke, that that chokehold, that death grip that sin has on them. And he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The idea is, everyone is going to present themselves to something or someone. Everyone is going to give themselves to something or someone, right? They're going to give their life, their time, their resources, their emotions, their desires, their affections, the entirety of who they are. They're going to give it to someone, give it to something. And Paul's saying you can either give it to sin and self or you can give it to God, right? You can either offer yourself to God. Sin as an instrument of unrighteousness or offer yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. It's the same thing that Paul says later in the letter in Romans 12 when he says, I urge you to offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, one that is holy and pleasing. And if you do, that is your spiritual act of worship. So worship is not merely singing in church or praying or doing religious things. It's not less than that, but it's, it's far more than that. Worship is offering the entirety of who you are. It's presenting yourself to God as someone who has been brought from death to life for the purpose of righteousness. That's what worship is. You're going to give the entirety of who you are to something or someone. The question is not Uh, am I going to worship? Will I be a worshiper? The question is, who will I worship? What will I worship? Am I going to worship myself and all of the things that myself demands that I do for it? Or am I going to worship God and do what he commands and what he desires for me to do? And Paul is saying the mark of a true Christian is that you no longer give yourself to self, right? You, you no longer worship at the altar of self, you now worship at the altar of God offering yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Right? You recognize that God has brought you from death to life and therefore you recognize that anything less than offering yourself to God as an instrument for righteousness in light of his having brought you from death to life, anything less than offering yourself to him is Absurd! It's 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 an insult because God has done so much for you that offering yourself to Him is the least uh, the least that you could do. And then Paul concludes: for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. These are two key concepts that we need to. Understand as we kind of walk through the rest of the book, and we need to understand just to, to uh, just to grasp the nature of the Christian life under law, under grace. Right? Paul saying, "You're not under law; you're under grace." And the reality is that that being under grace, as opposed to being under law, is supposed to be fuel that drives you and propels you forward to live a life that is not under the power and dominion of sin. Right? sin will have no dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. So the the question is, what is it about being under law that would give sin dominion over me? And what is it about being under grace that would mean that sin no longer has dominion over me? Now, Paul's going to expound on that as well in in Romans 7, talking about the the power of the law and how the law actually gives life to and strength to sin. But for our purposes here, we can just kind of start the conversation by saying that, that you are either under law or under. Law means do this thing, obey this command. If you do, you will be rewarded. If you don't, you will be punished. I have little. It's just a law. It's just a rule. I don't know. Like it. It, it has nothing to do with my, how I feel about you. It has nothing to do with my affection for you. It's just there's a rule, right? It's like your. It's like your employer, right? Like go to. It's like or the government, right? Laws that we have to obey, or else we get arrested and go to jail. Rules that we have to follow at work, or else we get fired and don't get a get a paycheck. Those are spheres that are ruled by law work the marketplace the the you know the federal, the government society they're ruled by law grace means i love you period like i i have always loved you i will never stop loving you there's you can't do anything to change the fact that i love you you can't do anything to make me love you any more than i do already because i already love you as much as i possibly can you can't do anything to make me love you any less than I love you because my love for you is stronger and bigger than any bad thing that you could do. So law looks a lot like you know, your employer or the government. Grace looks a lot like a family. Like like a godly husband's love for his wife or a godly wife's godly wife's Love for her husband or godly parents and their love for their children. And so Paul is saying, you as a Christian can have victory and power over sin. Sin will not have dominion over you. And here's the reason why. The reason why sin will not have dominion over you is because Jesus' love for you looks a lot more like the love of a godly husband for his wife Then it looks like the relationship between a company and their employee. God's love for you looks a lot more like the love of a father for his child than it looks like the relationship between a government and its citizen. And when you understand that reality, that you are not under law, you are under grace, that understanding is going to drive you and propel you and compel you to live a life of righteousness and godliness. Sin sin won't won't have dominion because you're not under law, you're you're under grace. I, one of the chores I do in my house a lot is the dishes. Jerry does dishes a lot, to be sure, but I actively try to do them whenever I can. Most nights, I'll be the one who, who does the dishes. Now, it just so happens that the first job I ever had when I was 16, just got my driver's license, was at an Italian restaurant right right across the street from the house I live in right now. You could walk there. And my job was doing dishes. So here's the question. Do you think I did a better job doing dishes? Do you think the dishes ended up cleaner in the summer of the year 2000 when 16 year old Ben had a mohawk was washing dishes in that restaurant so I could save up money to go to a punk concert at the Norva or do you think the dishes ended up cleaner and I did a better job last night before I went to bed so that my wife would feel happy when she wakes up and comes downstairs in the morning and the kitchen is clean? When were the dishes... When did I work better and harder to make the dishes cleaner? It was last night. I didn't care how clean the dishes got at the Italian restaurant as long as I didn't get fired. Right? If someone pulled me aside and said, let me pro tip, I've been here a couple of years. If, here's some ways you can cut corners. Here's some ways that you'll you'll have to expend less effort. You can slack off. And the dishes probably won't be as clean, but they'll never know. Or if they do find out, it can't be traced back to you. Some other guy will take the fall for you. Someone showed me that. 16-year-old Ben probably would have done it. Because I was only there for the paycheck, and they only wanted me there for me to do the dishes. I was under law. In my house, I'm under grace. When we got married, Jerry didn't say... I take this man to be my husband for as long as we both shall live, provided that he does the dishes to my satisfaction, and if he doesn't, I'm leaving him. She tells, she tells me all the time, you don't have to do the dishes. I would be happy to do the dishes. Why don't you let me do the dishes tonight? And we, you know, I, I try to do them to, to serve her. In my house, I am not under law. I'm under grace. That doesn't make me want to serve my wife less. It makes me want to serve her more. Right? Just because she's not going to stop loving me if I don't do the dishes doesn't make me want to not do them. It makes me want to do them more because I love her and I'm grateful to her for how she loves me and how she has been gracious to me. The skeptic is going to look at Christianity and think, the only way God could motivate someone to serve him is by the law. Right, reward them if they obey, punish them if they fail. That's not true. There's a better way that God motivates his people to to do good, and it's called grace. He says, I'm going to love you unconditionally so that your heart is softened toward me. I'm going to empower you and fill you with my Holy Spirit so that you have the capacity to you, you now have new desires to serve me and you have, have new capacity and ability to serve me that you didn't have before. Sin is not going to have dominion over you. Not because you have to in order to avoid punishment, but sin is going to have no dominion over you because you are under grace. The faithful, godly Christian life is born out of motivated by the truth of the gospel and our understanding of it that's the only way it can be done if you don't understand the gospel you cannot and you will not live the Christian life you'll look for loopholes like Romans 6 1 why don't we continue in sin because God's going to be gracious to us anyway But if you say that, you're just showing that you don't understand the gospel and that you're not a Christian. If you understand the gospel, and if you truly see and understand and grasp and appreciate that Jesus died on the cross for you to save you from your sins and to bring you back into his presence forever, if you truly understand that, you're going to want to serve God. You're going to want to obey God. You're going to want to do everything that you can to love him and glorify him as much as you possibly can can. Christians by definition do not say shall I continue in sin since grace will abound anyway. Christians by definition are people who say I'm going to live for God sin will not have dominion over me not because I'm under law but on the contrary because I I'm under grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the wonderful reality that you have died for us to save us. We thank you that we are not under law, but that we are under grace. We pray that we could respond to the reality that we are under grace by living lives that glorify you. Lord, we don't want the benefits of Christ's death, right? We don't want just forgiveness of sin. We also want the benefits of Christ's resurrection, new life, supernatural power, regenerated desires to overcome sin and to grow to look more like Jesus, and we pray that you would help us to do that for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.